What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Pop quiz, hot shot. Oh, God, here it comes. You're walking down the street. Mm. You're in North America. Yes. You suddenly find yourself in desperate need of working dog equipment. Right. Where are you going to get it? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. Yeah. Is that where, if you were in North America, you would get all your working dog equipment? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Why? The best. All round good guy. All round good guy. Mac LaPointe. He spells his name with a C and not a K. Oh, he must be cool. He must be really cool. All right. Next question. Yes. You're walking down the street. Mm. Same street? No. Okay. Now you're in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) You can find yourself in need of dog equipment. Mm -hmm. Who are you calling? (sighs) Hang on a sec. Let me think about it. Is he a buff head? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, he's half a bullfed now. Yeah. Yeah. He's the fading bullfed. He's the fading bullfed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's given it away. I call old mate Jason Furman. Yeah. From Einzerwiener. Einzerwiener. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Yep. One more question. Right. You are in Ashland, Virginia. Right. And- That's you- very specific. <laughs> <laughs> You're walking down the street. Yep. Which street? Uh, any of a them. A street. Okay. And you meet a person mm. whose dog's just being unruly. Their pet dog's causing them all kinds of problems. Yep. Who are you going to refer them on to? Oh, the one and only Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Who runs that? Melanie Benware. Uh-huh. The Prez. The Prez of the ISCP. Yep. The one right. and only. So, you will need working dog equipment in North America. Mm-hmm. Canine, Canine Dynamics. Dynamics. Need any kind of dog gear in yep. Australia. Yep. Four Fed Central. Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Need some pet dog in-home what does she call it? She calls it stay and train or play and train. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All of that. Who are you calling? Kindred Canine. Melanie Benway. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Love you. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us on Zoom this time, we've Mm -hmm. changed platforms, all the way from San Francisco, is a very special guest, Denise Fenzi. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Denise. Thank you for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. We did a poll in our online Facebook group of who our listeners would like to listen to on the show, and you were coming up trumps in every poll we did. So we thought we'd have to get you on the show, and it was about bloody time as well. Oh, that's so nice to hear. I went to Australia several years ago. I really had a really good time, and I was so well cared for. So I went back for a family vacation a few years later, and I realized if I did not work I would be lynched. Like if I went all that way, I didn't do a tour. I just did one seminar in Sydney, but I had such a nice time. You know what? If you didn't have the damn quarantine with the dogs Mm. and if my country keeps going the direction it seems to want to go, I would gladly jump ship Mm. and move. Who brought you out? Well, it was complicated because I went to several places. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a place called Tailwaggers. 
Oh yeah, up in, that's up in, in uh, Queensland, I think. Town. Yeah. So I, I flew around a bit and I would work, uh, do seminar Saturday and Sunday and then private lessons on Monday and then go visit, I don't know, whatever zoos and, and look at things on Tuesday. And, you know, it was like that. Mm-hmm. It's intense. It was intense. Mm. But, um, I had a great time and I saw a lot. And uh, it was good. I think what most Americans are surprised by when they come here is that like landmass, we're similar size to the US, right? But we're so spread out. Like mm. there's just massive amounts of nothing. So moving between cities is this epic adventure rather than just like in the States, you drive two hours and you're in the next city and you can you can start again. Yeah. Right? Whereas here, no, it's like Yeah, 10 I think hours. Uh, the thing that just I could not get past was the birds. You have the most amazing birds. Like you'll be sitting in the middle of the field working with a dog and you look off to your left and there's like 30 parrots sitting on the ground. And of course I have to stop the lesson. Like the rest of you guys, you know, just wait, this is important. And you walk over there and they're gorgeous and they're colorful. And when you wake up in the morning, you hear the birds have so many sounds. I was fascinated by the birds and I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a bird person, but I came home so much more aware of that. I, I, mm-hmm. I just thought it was amazing. I loved that. Okay. Well, I've got an, <laughs> I knew this was coming. I, I've got an Australian bird story for you. So we're renowned around the world as having animals that love killing people. And we've got a particular bird here called a magpie, which um, uninterestingly enough, there's a football team called the magpies in Victoria that most people hate except for their supporters. But in the mating season, magpies are notoriously aggressive and you have to wear helmets with like spikes on your head or eyes painted on them to try and deter them and nothing <laughs> works. These bloody things attack you and they chase you all down the road. Like they legitimately swoop on you and hit you with their claws and their beak, you know, where people have gone into hospital and been damaged from magpie bites. So what bird story were you thinking of? Oh, I thought you were going to tell about the cockatoos that are here. So here at Glen Places where most sort of... Uh, well, a lot of the seminars are done in Sydney and at five o'clock in winter, what do you reckon? There's 500 cockatoos that turn up to yeah. the backyard. <laughs> yeah, they've got a breeding or breeding and nesting tree here. And everybody is always like, wow, look at these cockatoos. And then by the, by the third day, they're like, would they just shut up? <laughs> would they please just be quiet? We can't do anything. Yeah. Do you know what a, a Canadian goose is? No. Well, it's all relative. Okay. So if you just look at a Canadian goose, it's really quite beautiful. They're less beautiful when uh, they start to poop and they poop everywhere. And it's these long, I don't quite know how to explain it, but it's just nasty. Uh And then you're trying to train your dog and you go out to a field and they're really not very afraid. They all land on the field, right? So now your dog is a mess because it's all interested in the shit. You know, it's the kind of thing you look at. It's, yeah, it's beautiful until after a while I started. Can I swear on the show? Yeah, Yeah, of course. Go crazy. Okay. So I, we got to the point where it was, it's not Canadian geese, those fucking Canadian geese. Like that's all <laughs> I could think about when I looked at them. But I, I could understand an outsider would come in and say, my God, they're beautiful. Yeah, no. No, they need to go back to Canada is what they need to do. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the but bird. They migrate through. That's our bird podcast. Yeah. Uh, On to dogs. So, Denise, like Glenn said, we've been looking to get you on the show for a long time. A lot of people have been looking to hear from mm. you. The Fancy Dog Sport Academy is huge. Everybody's heard of that. And and I'd love to eventually get around to talking about that. But what I would really enjoy doing is going back to the start and discussing. And you tell us the story about how did this come to be for you? How did you become such a big name, a well-known competitor? Your first dog. Yeah. Like how did you, you know, your journey from student to instructor? Let's hear it. 
Oh, wow. Okay, well, I'll tell you a story that I've never told. I mean, the first minute. I could do this for three hours, but anyway, I won't. We've got all day. I remember my first experience with dogs. Uh, my mom saw an ad in the paper. So this is going back, because I'm 51, and I've had dogs. I've been competing since I was 12. So this took place much, much earlier. So I must have been seven or eight. And she saw an ad in the paper, and somebody was getting rid of their Lhasa Apso. And so uh, my mom and I, I remember walking there and it was about a mile and a half away. And the dog was living in a store, like in the basement or something. But yeah. I was a little kid and, and my parents were not dog savvy. And we took this dog out of the basement and then it was terrified, right? But that everybody at that time said, just, we'll just, just go home. And I remember dragging this poor dog home a mile, has never been out and she actually, you know how some dogs just have amazing temperaments and mm -hmm. kind of no matter what, they just, you know, well, that dog must have been one of those dogs because my mom decided, well, you know, take it to the dog training club because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And actually trained the dog for dog sports, for uh, obedience. That was all that existed then. Got a CDX on a Lhasa Apso. Nice. Now, I'm not saying it was beautiful. And it did take 23 shows to get that <laughs> CDX. But you got to give my mom some credit, right? Mm -hmm. There's some persistence. Yeah. And she did it. And it was brutal back then. You know, you go back 40 years, training was not beautiful. And so that poor dog really went through it. But the dog did it. So she got that dog. And uh, when I was eight or nine, and then actually they became my parents bred dogs for confirmation. So, and they bought CDs on the occasional dog and a uh, lot Apsos and CDXs. Those are nasty little dogs, by the way. I'm not recommending that you run out and get a, a Lassa Apso for competition. <laughs> My God, they used to get in these horrific, horrific fights. I remember that. And um, I wanted a dog to compete. And my mom, I was in 4-H. I don't know, do you have 4-H there? No, but we know what it is, like a youth program, right? Okay. Yeah. Like a, yeah, like a farmer's thing, you know, yeah. and they have dog things. And, and so I raised two puppies for guide dogs for the blind. I had a golden retriever and a Labrador. And um, so the, the deal was after I raised these two puppies for guide dogs, I could get my own dog. And so I raised my two puppies and then I must've been, you know, 11 or 12. And my parents had some rules. So it had to be a small dog. And I wanted a dog that could compete. So I got a Sheltie, I got a little Sheltie. And my first several competition dogs were all Shelties. They were uh, not bred for dog sports back then. I don't think people really did that. I'm sure they did in the protection world, but dogs that competed were the dogs that were not confirmation dogs. That was the way you divided up the litter. So the, the beautiful ones were um, show quality and the not beautiful ones were competition dog sports quality. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think we've come away since then, but that's where that's, that's how it started. And so I got some low-level titles, CDs, CDXs, nothing special, no particular high scores. Uh, pretty rough. It was pretty rough on those dogs. Uh, and then um, before I went to college, it was, what, 17, 18, and I had a puppy. I had a new puppy. And uh, the tradition at the time was you don't trade a dog until it's six months old. And the reason is we're very hard on the dog. And so I don't know what happens exactly at six months, but apparently that was the age that you train. But I didn't want to do nothing. And I had this little dog. So I decided I would just teach it tricks. And the tricks looked suspiciously like dog training, right? The difference is you used food, right? Because it was tricks. And I actually got quite a lot done with that little dog. Uh, but then sadly for the dog, it turned six months old. So anyway, <laughs> that happens. Oh, well, uh, we had rules back then. 
So I did work with that dog a bit uh, during college, coming home, going back and, you know, whatever. And then uh, I moved out and I didn't have dogs for a period of time. And when I was 24, I met my husband and I moved into a house. This was the first time I was thinking I could have whatever breed I wanted. And I really wanted a dog that could do everything. I wanted to do protection sports. I wanted to do herding. I wanted to do obedience and tracking. What all can you do with a dog? And really, there's incredibly few breeds that show that kind of range. Mm -hmm. And so I went with a Belgian Chiburin because okay. the Belgian Shepherds, the German Shepherds, I was concerned about health. Mm -hmm. So I kind of knocked those out. Uh, that doesn't leave much, right? If you want to do herding and protection, there go your Border Collies and your Aussies. So what's left, right? You, you know, uh, and Belgians were not popular then the way they, I think they are now. Uh, and I wanted the fluff. I thought they were pretty, you know, little turbulent with a little fluff on it. <laughs> and uh, so I said to my not yet husband, you know, I want to get a dog. And he's like, that's great. I want you to have a dog because he had a pretty high powered job at that time and was traveling a lot. And I'm like, honey, you need to understand that when I get a dog, it's not like when other people get a dog. <laughs> he's like, no, I totally understand. I love dogs, right? Yep. Ask him today. <laughs> He'll say, I really did not understand. <laughs> so, but he went along with it and I got my Belgian Tervuren. My first one was a dog named Justin and I followed the first six month rule. So I guess we're talking, let's see, I'm a 50 minus, so this is 25 years ago. And I got to the six month point and I, uh, I had switched to a tennis ball to train that dog. I could use food, but you know, he liked his ball and I don't know what caused me to think that might work, but I just did. I just started training the dog with a toy and doing really kind of classic luring, healing and mm -hmm. six months comes along and you know, he's actually doing pretty good. So I just decided to just keep going seven months, eight months. 10 months of age, I took him to a local dog training class. I'm sure prepped to show off because this dog knew a lot of stuff, right? And he had a meltdown. 10-month-old Belgian intact. He was all, you know what he looked like, right? He was all over the place. And uh, so that was when the corrections came with okay. that dog. But when he was 28 months old, he was a breed champion. He had his tracking title. He was a high-end trial at our national winner. He was a UDT. I mean, he... He learned a lot. He learned fast when he was young. He did end up with a Schutzen 3. He was my first Schutzen dog. Wow. Uh, he was from Show Lines. And uh, I'll tell you this. The one thing I said about that dog, what I learned about him and getting a Schutzen 3 on that dog, I will never work that hard again in my life. And from <laughs> that day forward, I switched to working line dogs because mm -hmm. in my country, there's a very strong split. Yeah. And it's not that it's not possible. He did it. It is possible. But there's really no comparison between the dogs I work with now and what it's like to mold the behavior and what it was like to work with him. And he was a fantastic dog, really uh, stable and bred to be a, just a good dog. You know what I mean? Just a good dog, like a clear headed dog, sensible dog, good dog. But he didn't have that crazy prey drive that they're breeding in now, which is a mixed blessing. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have that, I can't stop biting. Like, you should have seen my hands with my new puppy. That first two months was like, people were going, oh, my God, you look like you've been through a meat cleaver. Um, <laughs> so it's a mixed blessing because the dog I have now for dog sports, you know, he bites all the time, you know, which is great for my interests. But he doesn't have that, like, 
all round good dogness about him. He's extreme. He's extreme in so many ways, but damn, is he fun? I mean, it's just, really entertaining for me. Can we take a, just a step back on that? So it's interesting you say that your show line to urine had good nerves, but didn't have the drive that you wanted. Because like, if I were to guess, when you said, oh, it was a real struggle to get through, I would say, oh, was it a nerve issue? And being Schutzen back then, it would have still been stick hits, right? So it would have been a harder test on, like quite a yeah. hard test on a dog back then. But you say the nerve was good on the dog. Yeah, no, okay, so there's been a change. In the United States, 25 years ago, we didn't have European imports. Mm -hmm. So the Tervuren were old American lines. The old American lines look like, almost like a German shepherd cross. They okay. are much more uh, heavy. Uh, he was very dark, almost black. He had a very black head. He was very fluffy. He was short-legged. He is a breed champion, but there's no way he could finish today. Right. Then AKC changed their rules for importing, and we brought in a bunch of dogs from Europe, and the temperament has changed dramatically. So okay. the strengths and weaknesses of the dogs has just turned on its head. Mm. And so now it's just a different world. Yeah, um, that's what I mean. So I think if you were to ask today, how do you think you'd go finding a Tervuren that could be suitable swim. and the same, you'd probably say it'd be like you might find one high in drive, but it, that drive probably would come from nerve, right? Yeah. Would you agree with that? Is that the, what you see now? You mean for a show line dog? Boy, we're getting into some sticky stuff here. Um, <laughs> well, we, this is our third episode in a row that we're going to upset breed people. So I figure, well, okay, let's just lean well, into it. <laughs> I would say that if you want to work with a show line Tavirin, you better know those parents well. You better know that pedigree well. And you want stability first and foremost. Get a stable dog because otherwise you end up building a glass house. So yes. you, you have a dog that looks good as long as there's no pressure and it's all fun and, it, and you're not asking too much. Because some of the dogs today, in my opinion, have much better energy than like my first dog was low in energy, but he was very, very stable. So that's why like in real life, if he broke into my house, he would have taken care of it mm -hmm. because he wasn't a prey driven dog. He was a real dog. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, what I'm seeing, I'm seeing better prey better interest in the game. Uh, I'm seeing more affiliation towards the handler, which is really nice. You know, they, my dog never looked at me. Everything was trained. He could care less about, he was not attached to me in that way. I love the, uh, the degree to which the current dogs that I've seen coming like from the, the European line show dogs, they look to the handlers much more. Mm -hmm. They have much better energy, but where I would say they lack and where they need uh, some work is the stability. And that's, I think the best word I want is they need to be stable. Yeah. So, you know, well, while we're at it, let me just hit on working dogs for a sec. Working dogs aren't all that either. I mean, they certainly have their things and there are plenty of working dogs that if you take a bag and you go, boom, and you pop it, they'll freak. Yeah. The difference is their love and biting is so strong that you can get them biting through the pressure. Now, mm -hmm. I don't approve of that. I don't think we should be breeding dogs that lack stability. I want stable dogs. I don't care if it's a working dog or a show dog, but I recognize that the working dog breeders have gotten around this by breeding in dogs that will go through fire, almost obsessively OCD style, you know? Yeah. So my new puppy, what I love about him, he is genuinely stable. Mm -hmm. So he looks at the world. He sees the world. He recognizes what is out there. He's not afraid of the world at all. I love that kind of baseline stability add to that super good prey, add to that super good fight, add to that really nice fighting style. Uh, where we struggle is he does not like people and he does not like dogs. So he likes me. Right. 
That would be fine if I lived in Europe. The problem in the United States is that people have an expectation of other people's dogs, mm. which is high levels of sociability. And it is very hard for people to accept that he's my dog. So just leave him alone. He doesn't want to bother you. He just doesn't want to. He's not your friend. Yeah. And so if it's in his best interest to visit you, if you have food or toys, he is your best friend. Mm -hmm. But don't try to touch him. And don't try to make friends because he's not, he doesn't know you. That's way too personal. So where I struggle is that my society wants him to be something he's not. Mm -hmm. uh, so that puts a lot of management responsibility on me. Uh, my life would have been much easier if he was just born more sociable, but he just wasn't. Yeah. And I tend to, I take dogs for what they are. I am not inclined to change dogs. My philosophy is bring out the best in the dog you have. And so I think working with him, the way I will. I think in a couple of years, what I'm going to have is a dog who's very neutral and tolerant as long as I don't let people push him. Sure. You know, that would be the goal. How old me. is he now? He's seven months. Oh, okay. So still a baby. Yeah. Still a lot he's to find out about him. Yeah. 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 He, he, but he's certainly, he's certainly a lot of dog. He's, uh, he's more dog than I've ever had. That's awesome. Where's he um, from? He's from a, his pedigree is uh, Malinois, but he's a long coat. So in the United States, if you're born from two long coat parents that were imported, then your dog is registered as a Tavirin. Right. If your dog is born from two American dogs that were not imported, then your dog is a Malinois. So because his parents <laughs> are imports, it's too bizarre. But he is technically, he is registered as a Tavirin. But if you look at his parents, the Tervuren community would not know his pedigree, right. but the Malinois pedigree would be, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, these are dogs I know. These are these are our dogs. Yeah. I think so, that's one of the reasons. You know, I like the long coat. I think that's one of the reasons why we've, I personally have kind of given up on distinguishing too much about breeds like that, like Dutch Shepherd, Malinois, Tervuren, like Fluffy Mally, Black Mally. Like you, you can really get into the weeds on saying what they are and it doesn't really matter. We, we call them pointy, no. we call them pointy eared dogs. Like that's, that's as good as a distinguishment as I need. Like pointy eared dog that's not a German Shepherd is mm. usually all, all we need to know about a dog if we're going to start to work it. It's interesting what you say, just going yeah. back a few steps. It's really music to my ears because I, I, I observe that a lot. And then I think that a lot of the times what's happening in breeding of working dogs is we've accelerated the drive and it can cover a lot of nerve issues while the dog is in drive. And what I've observed, and I wonder if it's, it sort of ties into what you were just saying is that I see a lot of dogs that will endure anything on the bike because they're so highly aroused in drive. And, they, you know, they'll, they'll go through a wood chipper at that point. Mm. But out of drive, they're kind of a nervous wreck. And then I actually have had a lot of experience with those dogs being quite dangerous, right, especially in a family home because they're, they're on edge all the time. And when they're out of drive, they're kind of uh, – you know, quite unstable. Right. And I think that has led to a lot of issues in, you know, dangerous family homes. And, and it also has maybe created the idea that a sport dog has to be kept or a working dog, not necessarily a sport dog, but a working dog has to be kept in the kennel and only come out to work because perhaps with those dogs, that is the only safe way to live with those dogs. Right. Whereas I like exactly what you're just talking about as well. Like I have a very stable dog to me. Stability is important above anything else because my dog, lives in the house with me. He's my dog. I enjoy his company. And, and he's, uh, we compete. We, he's got his first leg of a PSA too, but he's a pet 99% of the time. And he needs to be able to live in the world comfortably rather than, you know, feel comfortable only when he's got a mouthful of French linen. 
Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. My dogs are pets and I, I can't even grasp the idea of having my dogs live otherwise. They're my dogs and uh, I want my dogs to live as pets. And I, I'm doing a presentation for an aggression conference in a couple of weeks. I'm talking about high drive dogs and how to raise them because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what I consider normal behavior. Other people do not. Mm. They kind of freak out a little bit. I think that some things that would upset people I find normal and they'll grow through it. But it's important to me that uh, the dog be a pet. And I often wonder if, because so many working dogs live in kennels, the people just don't know. Like the owners of the dog doesn't know that their dog, like my puppy is an extreme car chaser. He, <laughs> from the moment I got him off the airplane, he was screaming. I didn't even know what he was screaming about. He was screaming because there were forklifts in the building and he was going to get them. And then when we got out the door, I finally realized what was causing this. His prey drive is so high. It doesn't matter what it is. It's birds, everything. Well, that sucks. You know, I'll deal, but it sucks. But for all I know, his parents are pets, but his grandparents, for all I know, they all do it. And nobody would know Mm -hmm. because if you're living in a kennel, you don't know that the dog has OCD. You don't know that the dog is, you know, spinning. Mm -hmm. You don't know that the dog has... So it's great to talk about, you know, oh, the dog is so, so much ball drive, so much of that. It's like, yeah, but... I can't live with a dog that has to wear a bark collar all the time because it screams 18 hours a day. So I really, I really value dogs and I love my breeder to bits, you know, she's so honest and that's a big deal for me. I told her what I wanted. She gave me what I asked for. Admittedly, I probably would have asked a couple extra questions with hindsight, but I got exactly what I asked for because she knows her dogs and she knows her lines and she's honest and they live there. So she can tell me, yeah, we have arousal issues in these lines. This is the kind of thing you're going to see. Uh, these are some of the things I might do to head it off at the pass. So I love that dialogue. I could not have that dialogue. I've spent a lot of time in Europe looking at working dogs because I used to breed Belgian working lines. So I visited a lot. And, you know, I've seen dogs there. I remember visiting one very famous kennel. There's 50 dogs there, 50 Belgians. And there was a dog that was screaming and spinning and fighting, and they breed that dog. Mm. Nobody can go near him. Nobody can go near that dog. And they breed him because he's giving them something they want in the puppies. And all I can think is wonderful. Out of five puppies, you have to put three to sleep. You have one who's crazy great on the field, and then you breed that one, right? Mm. And then you have one on the side who's just a normal dog. But you're perpetuating that in the line. Hang on, hang on, hang on, Denise. Are you telling us that there's unethical breeders out there? (laughs) Well, and you know, I would almost call it ignorant rather than unethical. Mm. I think they think it's okay to to breed that way without thinking about, it's it's the same as like if you breed, I love field goldens, you know, Mm. but don't put a field golden in the home of a person who got a golden because they thought they were getting the other kind of golden. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or a field lab, a field lab and a show line lab are very different temperaments. Mm. And for the average pet home in the United States, the dog you want is actually the show line lab. So it's your responsibility to tell people, you know, or if somebody comes to you and they say, I- I'm a hunter, I want to do this on the weekend and you breed show line labs, you might want to say to that person, I might not have exactly what you're looking for. Uh, tell me more. Mm. Right. And give people what they want, but it does take, the first thing it takes is people accepting that dogs are not all that. I can't tell you how often I have this conversation. See, I'm really, now I'm just running right down the path, huh? How often people say, oh no, my dog can do everything. Mm. No, uh, 
Now my dog's showbread, but my dog can fill in the black. He can hurry. He can do this. And I'm like, well, how hard is it to teach it? And at what level? Right. So I think a little honesty goes a long way. Mm. I'm neither pro show dog nor anti show dog. I'm not pro working dog nor anti. The question is, what do you want? And where are you putting your puppies? And are you being honest? Be honest about it. A little self-reflection is a good thing, right? You know, it's, yep. I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. My dog does not look like a show dog. Mm. I, I'm not ashamed of that. So I would love for the show dog people to stop assuming that what's inside their dog can do what my dog can do because it can't. Yeah. The difference is you can look at my dog and see he's not a show dog. You don't, it's obvious. Mm. I have to work with your dog. Maybe not very long, but I have to work with your dog. Every once in a while we get lucky. My puppy has a litter mate that I believe could finish a championship. It's a fluke. It's a beautiful dog. It happens, you know. There's no doubt in my mind there are show dogs out there who can do IPO and even do it well. But there, it's a fluke. You get what you breed for. Yes. And if there's 200 qualities you're breeding for, you can't get them all. Nobody can do it. It's not possible. Yeah. You could try to be more jack of all trades. You could try to be more, you know, to the working line or more to the pet side or more to the, you could pick, but it drives me nuts when people says, oh, this is going to be the whole package. And I'm going to say, uh, well, let's sit back and kind of talk this one through because which part of the package are we emphasizing? There is no way your dog is all things. I had that dog. I had the champion UDT high in trial ships and three. And like I said, I never want to work that hard again. <laughs> he's a, he was a great he was a great dog. I still think he's a great dog. And I still don't want to get a dog like that again for bite sports. It's too hard. You're uh, pretty much my favorite person right now because I think it was three or four episodes ago, me and Glenn mm. had this exact same conversation in that I was saying like, you have selective pressures. And so yep. when you're breeding, you have to choose which is my highest priority, which is my highest selective pressure and everything else is what you get. You you choose for looks or for drive or for temperament or whatever it is you want. And then the other things are just the other things and you choose what's important to you. Something I wanted to explore with you and I think this is a good time to interject it, is I think one of the big issues that we have in dog training as an industry is our vocabulary is all over the place. And I think that we haven't really agreed on terminology and things. And that goes across everything. You know, when we're talking about the definition of a correction, for example, but also drive and work. Mm. Like the word drive and work can mean really different things to people. And so with your current puppy, what sport are you going to pursue with him? What's your main focus? He's being trained for Mondio ring sport. Perfect. So when you talk work and pressure, you're talking Mondio is the work and the pressure that will have to heal endure is the stick hits and the, well, no hits, the barrage and the presence of the decoy, right? And I recently was talking, we were talking on the show about, you know, that particular breed and the chances are they're not capable of the work. And it was pointed out to me that they are very capable of the work when the work is barking at someone that works, walks past the house, right? Like if that's what you consider the work to be, then the dog does that. And it is. And I think that we, you know, I would love for there to be some sort of standardized vocabulary. It's another one where we say people will talk about drive and you, I regularly see puppies advertised as extreme in drive, right? And then I would observe that and go, Oh, I would call that moderate drive. And that's not to say that the person that's calling that dog extreme in drive is lying. They could pass a polygraph. And to them, that is extreme drive because mm -hmm. it's the top end of what they've ever seen in their life. I have a really nice valley. He's, you know, it took me a long time to find him. I've, I'm in love with him and he's the dog that I wanted for nine years, right? I went through a lot of dogs trying to find. A lot of people 
who observe me working with him call him extreme in drive. But people who really know Mallys would say he's actually a really nice medium dog, right? Like he's got a nice medium temperament in most things. He's very stable. He really likes biting, but he's not extreme. He really likes eating, but he's not extreme. You know, just a really like, and quite a biddable, perfect dog for what I want. But other people will see it and go, wow, that is off the tap is like, dude, you've never seen the tap full open. Right? <laughs> I, I agree. And to add to that, do you see anxiety or do you see drive? I see this all the time Yeah. <laughs> in the working communities. I see anxious dogs that yeah. don't know what is being asked of them. So they go, hip, 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 you know, that kind of mm-hmm. high end squeaking edge and barking all the time. But that is not barking and squeaking because it's in drive. It's doing that because it's anxious and it doesn't know what you want. Mm-hmm. And All you have to do is clarify for the dog what the expectation is, and now the head clears. So now you have a clear-headed dog. Once again, we're using this vocabulary. And these things, I've actually given up on words unless I know who I'm talking to. Yeah. So when I talk to a person who is, let's say, an AKC show line type person, my mental model is completely different. Like, I just change my scale. And when I'm talking to an IPO person, I change my scale. And when I'm talking to a Mondial ring person, I keep changing my scale, but even so I need to see and because I very often see things differently than the next person Mm -hmm. sees them. You know, I really like a clear headed dog. And so a lot of people, the way I train my dog, I put a ton of control on my puppy, a ton, because in my opinion, any Malinois worth anything, the drive will be there. It's just a matter of asking. So I'm not worried about that. It's the control that's an issue. Mm. And I remember talking to a decoy who's working my puppy and he did comment. He was saying puppy's a little angry and my puppy's actually quite angry when he works. And so there's things I can do bringing out the prey, keep him in prey, keep him in prey. Don't, don't let him get angry. And I just remember he was so calm. He doesn't look like a normal dog at six months. And I said, I can bring in the fire later. And the decoy looked at me and he goes, why would you ever want to bring in the fire? Because now you got a problem. And it was actually, I was, really uh, grateful to that person for pointing it out to me. I just remembered looking at it thinking he doesn't look like the others, mm-hmm. but he can't look like the others because I don't train like the others. I don't train my dog high and drive and then try to clean it up. It's all this control, control, control. I said the same thing for field dogs. Why are you out there having the dog chase dead things? I mean, they put these dead things on ropes and they got the dog chasing the duck. What kind of a halfway decent Labrador golden from field line doesn't want to go after a duck? That's how I look at a good biting dog. I swear to God, I had a dog once. She was like 10 weeks old, little working Malinois. And she saw an IPO sleeve on the ground and you should have seen her. She'd never seen one in her life. I swear her whole genetic background said, I must get that object. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, and I have seen a field dog look up at the sky when it heard a a gunshot. How did the dog know to look at the sky? You know, that kind of stuff. When I see that, I'm like, well, I've yet to see a Malinois that knew it was supposed to heal to the line, but I've certainly seen Malinois that knew to bite. So my mental model is super, super heavy on clear headedness, control and allowing the biting, but it's such a radical approach. And it's Mm. nothing like what anybody else in my club does. My club is fantastic. They just humor me. They don't care. They're like, look, you got a plan. You know what you're doing. You take responsibility. We'll do it your way. Mm -hmm. So I love working with them. You know, it's just, we just all do our own thing. Uh, But it just doesn't look like the other dogs, you know, it's a different thing. But so about vocabulary, this is another thing we'll be talking about at this aggression conference. 
I'm going through some of the words saying, you know what, when you're looking for a puppy, for a pet person, you don't want extreme, like go out of your way to ask the breeders. I want the moderate puppies. I don't want high drive puppies. Like if you're going to work within the world of working dogs, even if you want a competition dog, like let's say you want a nice obedience dog and you want a good working line German shepherd. You do not want a high drive working line German shepherd for AKC obedience. You don't need that. What are you going to do with that screaming, squeaking thing and that little tiny ring? What mm-hmm. you need is a really moderate dog from working lines. You'll have all the power you could possibly want. <laughs> I agree with everything you're saying. Mm. I just feel vindicated about so many things we were talking about a while ago. It's great. You can take some of the heat off of me. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting listening to this conversation because we were just finishing up a student group last week and we were talking along the lines of this subject of hammering square pegs into round holes. And it's been an issue that I've seen. I've probably been in dogs as long as you have, Denise, because I started in 1990 and hearing you guys talking about drive and the issues around that related to it, because there was an old saying back then, a guest speaker came out and told us way back in the day that drive blocks fear and pain. I was listening to Pat talking about it uh, exponentially before, and I thought, well, you know, you're absolutely right, because when you're seeing the drive picture of a working dog on a field, you're not truly seeing the dog that's at home that's becoming the problem. And the people are saying, oh, when he's here, he's fantastic. But trying to live with this maniac dog when they're at home and they're turning the furniture into sawdust and chasing the kids around and scaring all the neighbors and driving everyone crazy and whining and screaming at night. And, you know, basically the neighborhood hates us because of this dog. I totally agree. And it brings me to another subject, I guess, is that I was talking to a colleague the other day and they were talking about horse breeding. It had nothing to do with dogs, but it had a lot to do with horse breeding. And they were saying, that when they learned to breed horses, they did a lot of mentoring with other people about how to do it, what to look for, what traits to produce. And there was a lot of hand-me-downs from generations of expertise, people that have done it before. And there's none of that that exists in the the dog breeding world and the dog selection world. It's It's mainly about a quick exchange of money. There are ethical people, don't get me wrong. I'm not shooting down people who are doing it right and who have mentored well and have passed that language on to other people. But we're talking about very few percentage of of people that actually do that because when there is a lot of money in it and there is a lot of people who just, you know, they get their dog and they think, oh, I love this dog so much for none of the reasons that we're talking about. They're just in love with the dog, but they're thinking, I've got to pass this dog on to other people so they can love this dog as much as I do. And they're producing nightmares. They're producing dogs that are not capable of doing the work. The work that really that they're trying to foresell the dog into, it just doesn't exist. So, yeah, it's a bit of a crazy world sometimes with dog breeding and management. It's a big part of why I stopped breeding dogs. Mm. Uh, I pretty much established working line Tiberian in the United States. I produced very good dogs. They competed with the Malinois and did well. Yeah. And the struggle of finding homes, you know, and God only knows why I always have 10 puppies and everybody else is three. No, I I got all the puppies. I have two litters. I found it incredibly stressful to try to find homes that I felt because I insisted on pets. Like you couldn't be in a kennel. So right there, right. I just wiped out a bunch of people. And then, so so you have to keep the dog as a pet in your home Mm. and you have to want this kind of a high drive dog. Uh, And in a litter, not all of them are going to have all the qualities. So what do you do with the ones that aren't so stable, but they still have the energy? And, you know, I started finding it more and more stressful to try to find these kind of homes 
And I remember a bitch missed. And I remember my experience was relief. And mm. that, that was all I needed, right? To suddenly realize, wait a second, spent all this money to breed this dog and my reaction is relief rather than that's terrible, you know? Because I had a bitch miss, I don't know, a few years earlier and my reaction was quite literally to pass out at the vet's office when I was watching <laughs> the ultrasound and got taken out of the vet's office on a stretcher, wheeled <laughs> out through the waiting room. As if that ever happens again, cover me with a fucking sheet. <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather pretend be to be dead. dead. <laughs> yes. Then to wheel me out. And then because my dogs were there, they were stuck there. I had to go back and get them. And I'm thinking, I cannot go back in there. Right? <laughs> the walk of shame. Truly the worst day. Actually, I have to tell you one more piece of this because it's funny. I had a dog in with me having the ultrasound and I had a second puppy in the car. And the puppy in the car is not a social dog. It was not a social dog. So there was a, a sign on her cage that said in case of emergency and had some information. And when I came back, when I regained consciousness, I actually thought I had a stroke. I could not move. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't talk. I could look and that was it. And the vet was trying to talk to me. She was actually perfectly lovely and was like, you know, we're going to go ahead and call an ambulance because you're not really coming to. And it was hot. And the, my dog was in the car and she would have been fine there for half an hour, but the day was going to warm up and the dog could not stay in the car. And I was so agitated and the vet knew I needed to say something. And I was finally able to say dog car. That's all I could get out. And she said, no problem. You have a dog in the car. But the part I couldn't say was, and if you try to open her crate door, she's going to eat you. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't talk. So I watched the vet tech walk over to the wall and get one of those round slip leashes. And I swear to God, part of my brain was saying, well, if you did have a stroke, you still have a sense of humor because one side of me was still thinking, this isn't going to go very well. <laughs> so a minute later, the lady comes back, the tech comes back with the leash and she puts the leash on the wall and she looks at me and she says, there's no way I was going to get your dog out of that car. She says, but I saw your in case of emergency thing and I opened it and it said, take the dog in the crate to the nearest vet, remove the crate from the car and put the crate in the vet's office. And that's what they did because I was at the vet's office. So she said, your dog is fine. We took the crate out. She's in the back. Everything is fine. Perfect. Yeah. But I still had to go back and get her, which was really mortifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't recommend passing out at the vet's office. I don't recommend it passing out anywhere in public. But oh, uh, bet. yeah, that was grim. Hey, let's explore that for a second. Cause you said you had this nasty dog, right? And something you said a little while ago was that you're not into changing who dogs are. And I think someone with your experience in dogs, that's an interesting thing to say, because I feel like what we see from a lot of, you know, certainly I had this feeling myself, maybe five or six years ago, when people are sort of five or six years into dog training and they're getting pretty good, right? Like they're starting to sort of really solve a lot of problems and they're able to help a lot of people. There's that, you know, like the Dunning-Kruger kind of learning curve effect where you go like, hey, I'm all over this. I can change dogs. And I have this operant model, right? Like me and Skinner are old friends <laughs> and I know that I can reward behaviors I want to see more of and I can punish away behaviors. 
behaviors I don't ever want to see again. And like temperaments are purely operant and I can change dogs and make them anything they want. And then it's about a year later, I think most people then go, oh, fuck, that doesn't work. Right. Or, and then I think eventually they come around to the idea and it was actually Michael Ellis that said almost word for word, the same thing you said to me when I was at his school, he was like, it's not whether I can or can't, it's that I don't want to. I want to fix a dog's problems. I want the dog to lead his best life, but I don't want to change his personality because that's who he is. So can you unpack that a little bit for us and talk about that? And, you know, have you always felt that way or is that a recent realization for you as well? Well, that's a good question. So the dog in the car was named Reka, and Reka's a bit of a famous dog. She passed away a year ago. Uh, and I have a book coming out actually in about a month about her and our relationship after she retired. Okay. And it's a nice book. I mean, she's a famous dog and she accomplished a lot in her time, but really I got to know her after she retired and it stopped being about work. And it started being about the fact that I fed my dog so much. She was 10 pounds overweight. And how could I let that happen? I'm a dog trainer. I'm appalled when I brought her to the vet. My 12 year old dog is fat. And so I started walking her. And so for the next three years, I started telling stories about this dog on Facebook. And so lots of people got to know Reka. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned, um, first of all, she's actually not an aggressive dog, but she is a crate guarder. So if you Mm -hmm. went to the car, that's where the problem was. If I'd taken her out, she's fine with people. But again, not sociable. So if you watch any of her videos, her working videos, where we're in tight rings, small rings, she just doesn't look at the judge. The judge can examine her. The judge can be there. It's not a problem but she's not going to be friends. And when Reka was about 13, she decided she liked people. Like, I don't know what happened, but suddenly she decided that people petting her was just not so bad. And so she started to make friends and she started to make friends with other dogs. She's never liked dogs. And then on our walk, she started to meet dogs that she was adorable with them. She would go up like that little rocking horse thing they do when they're Mm -hmm. being cute and old. And I think With hindsight, looking at her, when I was focused on her as a competition dog, I didn't let her personality come out. I kept her so focused on me and so focused on work that I think I stilted her personality. And since then, I treat my dogs differently than that. I, uh, I properly socialize them. So what I mean is I want them to look at the world. I take them out and I encourage them to look at things. You you can visit or not. It's kind of up to you. I'm not trying to make you social, but I'm not discouraging it either. I'm not worried about getting you focused on me. I can do that. I'm a good dog trainer. I'm a fun dog trainer. I have a personality. I'm not going to have a problem getting the dog on my team. The way to get the dog on your team is not deprivation of alternatives. So now I really do try to bring out my dog's personalities. I want them to be dogs. It just so happens this puppy I have is just not very social and, and he is who he is. And, and there's some downsides to that for me. Uh, I know Michael fairly well. I live near him. I've trained with him quite a bit. Uh, he is one of the people who had a, quite an influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, him and Ivan both. Uh, I spent a lot of time with both of them. And It's not that I wouldn't change some behaviors if I could, but I think people severely overestimate their impact. I think people don't recognize how much maturity changes behavior. And so they take credit for it. So they say, oh, I've been working on this for a long time. So for one year, I've been working on this thing and I'm looking at the behavior and I'm thinking a lot of dogs just outgrow that. Like biting. This is a classic example. Puppy mouthing, right? They rip you to bits. It can be horrific, you know? And I have heard every cure in the book for this. And I'm like, you know, the cure is time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like, as long as you just don't let them 
turn you into a Jew toy and you prevent, I don't mean hurting. I just take my hand away and say, well, you know, and give them something else. Redirect, redirect, redirect. You know, the problem just goes away. And yet everybody takes credit for it. Oh no, I've got the cure. I'm like, no, you didn't cure anything. Time cured it. Mm-hmm. So I think an awful lot of dog training, what we call dog training is nothing more than giving people the skills to get through the other side without damage. Like I talk about my favorite training method is called the inevitable. So the inevitable example, it is inevitable that you will not get on my counter. You just won't. It will never happen because if you ever do, I will be removing you from the counter. It is inevitable. That is a rule in my house. We don't get on my counters. Big dogs don't get on my couch. Little dogs do. Big dogs don't get on my couch. If you do, you take you off. My seven month old puppy who is unbelievably persistent still tries to get up on my desk and say, it is inevitable, I will remove you. Am I training him? Yeah, I guess, but that's not really what's happening. What's happening is time is going by and he is shrinking down the opportunities, right? Things on the floor are for you, things on the desk are for me. So is it training or is it molding maturity, right? Mm. Is it just showing him the options that are going to work, right? I don't want you chasing cars. So we don't chase cars. We don't go places where there's cars to chase. If you do, there's these rules we're going to follow to prevent the problem. I don't want you dragging me on a flat collar. I have my dog on a flat collar, so I will stop you from doing it. So it is training, but it, it, the, it really walks that line between management and changing behavior because a lot of things if the dog doesn't practice them the problem doesn't start and you know like fence running you know barking events i am not going to have that i just can't have that in my life so if a dog goes out and anything starts up they come back in i just don't allow it it's hard because puppies take so much out of you i remember one day watching my puppy chew my shoe and after the 78th thing i had removed I just did not have it in me to take that shoe away. <laughs> I just said, you win this round. <laughs> I can't deal with it. And he was a puppy. He put him in the crate. He screams. So it wasn't like I could just crate him. He was just a real challenging little, little one. But for the most part, I want to bring out the best of the dog. Because sometimes I think we actually cause the exact problem, like by bringing attention to it, mm-hmm. like say, let's say my puppy doesn't like you. Oh no, he's not friendly. Hold on. Let me get you some food. I think by doing that, by working on it, I'm, I'm teaching him to pay even more attention to you and to look more at your face. Now you're staring at him and you're going here, puppy here, but, and now you're getting weird. Now you're reaching out with your hands and doing weird stuff. And all you're doing is teaching my puppy. He was right. People are weird. Like to me, the best answer is to honor the dog and mm-hmm. say, you know what? I don't know if you're afraid of that person or I don't know what your deal is. And it doesn't even matter. What I know is that right now you don't want to visit that person and I can make that happen for you. I am not going to let that person approach you. I'm going to keep you over here. Now, if that person happens to be playing with my other dogs and feeding them, you're going to miss out on that opportunity. And that's fine. That is your choice but I'm not going to make you do anything. And I find that that brings out the best of who the dog is going to be. And I don't necessarily get to decide who that is, Mm. but I will say in breeding is when you address those things. So if you look at a dog and you recognize that low sociability is risky for lack of a better word, because I think there's risk, don't breed it in, but you have the individual dog. So love what I, I, my puppy has so many amazing qualities and that is where I put my energy. 
I focus on how amazing he is. And I try to bring out the best I can of the other qualities. And someday, so right now he's my running buddy. You know, we go out for our four mile run in the morning and then we follow it up with a one mile training walk. Like now you have to walk nice on the run. He's on a harness. He can drag me all he wants. Now we switch to the collar. Now we have to be a nice dog. So everybody gets their needs met, right? Everybody has a role. In a year, if I don't have him where I want him, where I feel that he is safe for society, and what I mean is I believe society has the right to walk past my dog and not have my dog bark at their dog, growl at their dog, lunge at them. Those are not acceptable. It's not kind. I have rights. The dog has rights. Society has rights. So if a year goes by and I cannot make him a socially acceptable dog, then he won't do those things anymore. Now, it just so happens that I'm not worried about it. I feel very confident that he's going to be just fine because I'm already seeing so much progress in his behavior in the presence of dogs that I'm not worried, but he will never go to a dog park. Like that, that's not even a possibility because he doesn't want to go to a dog park. Sure. He never will. I don't want to go to a dog park. Although, you know, we do have some dog parks, which are all about cheese and wine. Like you show up. <laughs> And it's true though. So you get out your, and we already know I like my occasional drink. So you go to the dog park with your cheese and your wine. That's my idea of a dog park. But the more standard one where the dogs just, he's never going to go to a dog park. And I'm totally good with that. And I, it is something I really work with people to find what they love about their dog. Cause every dog has something, you know, something that's just charming mm. and focus on what you love. And some dogs are just tough. You know, dogs with separation anxiety, for example, that's so stressful. That is, there's so much resentment in there from the human to the dog. And then, you know, you have a trainer who, uh, depending on sophistication level, may or may not honor the well-being of the human. Like a human being dealing with a dog with separation anxiety needs a ton of support Mm. and appreciation for what they are doing because they are, giving that dog a chance where a lot of people would not like that is where the trainer needs to be focusing. You are an amazing person, what you are doing with this dog and that dog, look how that dog loves you. Look at how that dog looks to you. So to me, that is bringing out the best in the dog and acknowledging to the person, it must be frustrating what you're dealing with. You must, you must sometimes feel very resentful and that's okay. You know, I think that allows people to look at the dog and rather than being embarrassed about his behaviors, you know what? He came with a package. You rough the edges. Anybody who's had children, anybody who's had children knows this is true. Before you have kids, you actually think you're all that. <laughs> you have kids, you realize how little control you have over yeah. that little person. And then you have two kids and all of a sudden you're like, how is this possible? Yeah. Like same genetic package, so different. So with dogs, you know, Look at the dog you have and find what you love. Find what's wonderful about the dog. Don't apologize for your dog, but make sure that society is safe. Society needs to be safe. You can't have Mm -hmm. your dog screaming if you live in an apartment. You cannot. That's wrong. It's not fair to society. You're going to have to solve that. You, the handler, you have rights. And you also have responsibilities. You picked that dog. So I understand that your dog is a hundred pound asshole and he's causing you a lot of grief. You picked that dog. So now you have to put in some time to Mm. train it. So, but you might have to give a little here, but that dog is going to have to give a little too. Mm. And society has to give a little too. We all have to acknowledge everybody, you know, just be a little kind. Like I would tell people on the trail, Hey, 
my puppy's not really ready to pass you right now. Would you help me out? If you would stand right where you're at, I'm going to come up around this tree here. Would that be okay with you? I have never had a person turn me down, not once. People are like, oh yeah, no problem at all. And then when I get past, I say, I really appreciate that. Thanks so much for helping me out. And, and then the next time I see that person, they're like, oh, your puppy's doing better. Like he becomes like a community puppy on the trail because yeah, you yeah. see the same people all the time, right? I, I'm a big fan of everybody has rights, people, the dogs, the society, and we all have to work together to make it work and everybody's going to give a little. Mm-hmm. But I think that lets everybody's best side come out. Right. You know, because people are embarrassed or if I see somebody with a reactive dog, I'll say to them, hey, you know, it looks like you're having a bad time. Would it help you if I cross the street or whatever? And you can just see their face. You know, they're embarrassed about their dog and all. they're like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Or if I see somebody working it, like working reactivity, feeding the dog, working with the dog, I'll say to them, I'll say, look at you. You're doing great. And you can kind of see them like, oh, that's so much nicer than people yelling. You know, you shouldn't let the dog do that. Like, like what? You think they want the dog to be a jerk? They're trying. So support that, right? Yeah. So yeah. to me, it's, you know, coming back around to what you said with Michael Ellis, it's all of us that need to be accepted. The dogs need to be accepted, but so do we. You yeah. know, we all have to give and take and it works out. I think about what you're talking about there. I think you know, usually behaviors are in balance, right? And I think that sometimes we end up with dogs that we might look at and go, oh, this asshole. But the reason he's an asshole there is because he has so much power somewhere else, right? Like everything kind of evens out. We all end up at the same point, but it just like the, the balance of the scale, if it goes one way because you really want that trait, like one maybe, you know, your dog's going to be a fighter and he's going to enjoy biting in a way that most don't and it's going to be personal and he's going to enjoy to actually hurt the decoy because that's what he likes to do to people you, you kind of have to then go well sometimes you're an asshole to people as well right? and i accept that because you look so good in those I other times book. yeah exactly i wrote a book called train the dog in front of you and i remember talking about my dog kisu and i said uh, about kisu so she was an obedience champion and also a ships in three and i think there have only been three in the united states that have her combination of titles and i said you know kisu had a lot of interests and i was only one of them Whereas Reka, I was her world. I was everything. So what happened when we got into AKC obedience, Reka did very well at the second level class because the second level class is all patterning and all focused on the handler. It's always a routine. You go out, you get your dumbbell, you come back. It's very predictable. Mm -hmm. It's like IPO, very predictable uh, schedule. In the utility class, in obedience, the dog has to make decisions. They have to find the correct scent article. They have to go out to a space they don't know where they're going. Reka really struggled in that third level class because she hated to be wrong. And she always looked to me for acknowledgement. Am I right? Kisu, the one who could honestly could have cared less about me. Like if I took her out of the car and let her go and just waited, she'd just leave. Like, and she'd go and go. <laughs> and if I called her back, she came back because she was a trained dog. Mm-hmm. But her natural inclination was to do what she wanted to do. Yeah, outwardly focused. Yeah, she had her own stuff going on. She was just a great dog, but she was also very confident. So when I got to that third level, she didn't care if she brought back the wrong scent article. She was not going to commit suicide because I didn't get my way. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Reka, it was a huge matter. And what I said is, you know, pick your poison. All of that independence is what gave her that confidence and gave her that strength. It also meant I had to work really hard on relationship and connection because she was not wired for it. Mm. Reka was born wired for connection. She was staring at me from the moment she was born. 
And what that gave me was incredible work close in. But as soon as you start adding the distance and the confidence to work at, you know, or like in Mondial Ring Sport, uh, I did Mondial with her. She couldn't go to the second level because the degree of pressure that they add, and I started when she was older and all, whatever, but that lack of external focus and strength, then it hurt me. So I said, it's not that there's good dogs and bad dogs. There are qualities that serve you well in this set of traits and in this set of traits. And, you know, I used to get people asking me when I was breeding dogs, they would list out what they wanted in a dog. And so here would be a fairly typical example. I want a dog that's beautiful. And I want a dog that loves kids. But if a bad person comes to my house, that dog knows to bite. I want a dog that has an off switch, but I want to do IPO at a high level. So it would go on like this for a while. And my response was usually, if I ever produce that dog, I'll be keeping it. Because that dog almost does not exist. Mm. What you're asking for is almost all of these opposite qualities. Dogs with that much self-confidence generally then don't give their soul to you in the same way. Like my puppy, I work at our relationship. People don't see that. All they see is he knows a lot of stuff, mm. but I work at it all the time. Like there's, there's not one second in public that I take my eye off him because I don't know what he's doing. His focus came innate. That is 100% wired in there. He's got incredible focus for work, but not for me. It's like, no, he's, you know, I, I'm working through you to get yeah. what I want. I don't think it's good or bad. It's going to serve me very well when he's working with a decoy a hundred yards away. Yeah. But it does mean in terms of balance, you said balancing, what's my job every day. My job is to look at the dog and say, what will give me balance? And right now balance is focused on me. He needs to focus on me, but you know what? In two months, maybe it'll start to shift and I'll have too much handle and focus. And then I'll have to ask myself, what will get him more focused out and say, that's the dog training to me never gets old because every dog every day is a different dog, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, you never get tired of it. There's always something to play with and yeah. to. There's um, always a new puzzle to solve, a new problem to yeah. unpack. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. one, right? Because over time I've heard people have the conversation about, oh, my dog's getting bored or I'm getting bored. And I'm saying, with what? What have you solved entirely that the rest of us are all missing out on? Yeah, you got that dog down. I'm a big fan of saying, if it's kind and effective and it works, run with it. And uh, so I'll explain some problem I'm having with my puppy and I'll tell people how I'm going to work on it. Mm. And they'll say, why don't you do it this way? And I'll say, no, that's a great way to do it. And here's why I'm not going to do that with my puppy. And some people really struggle with the idea that there's not a recipe for training. Some people really want, how do you teach your dog to sit? Well, you take a cookie, you hold it in the air, do it. Well, that's fine. But what do you do if the dog then wraps their feet around your hands? What do you do if the dog's not food motivated? There's always dogs that even the simplest things are not simple, but you know what? The thing is there are answers. There's lots of answers. And that's why the longer you're around, the more dogs you train, the more people you hang out with. But it always kind of bugs me when, when somebody says, how do you teach this? And somebody comes up with a, literally a step-by-step, like this will work for every dog recipe, yeah. especially in the world of behavior. Cause I think it's just downright dangerous mm-hmm. to do that in the world because emotions are huge. And a dog can be lunging at another dog because he's fighting and angry the dog can be fearful. The dog could be overstimulated. These are really, really different 
root causes. Yeah. And if you take a dog who's fearful and you treat him like he's angry, things are going to get ugly fast. Yeah. If you take a dog who's angry and has a lot of fight and your solution is to fight, you're going to be one sorry person mm. because in a week when you're in that situation again, your dog's going to redirect on you. Mm-hmm. So those little things, it's like the, there's not one size fits all. There can't be. There's too many qualities. And what's really cool is it's not even single qualities. It's combinations of qualities. It's not that your dog has fight. It's that your dog has fight and arousal. Ah, that's totally different than fight and low arousal or clear head versus a frantic dog or high energy or fearful is always the tricky one, right? Fearful. And there's a lot of fearful dogs out there, but the problem with fearful dogs is they look like aggressive dogs. And I don't personally believe that all reactivity is fear at all. I believe some reactivity is simply being an asshole and, and you can call that what you want, right? It could be angry, just like people. Some people like to fight. Mm. They, they get, you put them in a bar and what do they do? They go look and they go picking fights. You know, why does anybody do that? That's not typical, but it is real. So we do have dogs that are angry reactive. That's different than fearful reactive. And mm. all of these things are so impacted by all the other things, you know, is the handler hysterical? Is that making it worse? Is the handler calm? Does the dog even know if the handler is hysterical calm? Has the dog even looked at the handler? Like, these are all pieces of the puzzle that to me make this the thing you could do for 500 years and never get tired of it. Yeah. I think, you know, dog training, like many things is an art form that incorporates Mm. a lot of science. And I think, you know, when you look at what, certainly when I look at successful people, people who have been around a long time in any field, probably except mathematics, right? Mathematics is where you can say like, no, one plus one does equal two. And there's no, there's no way around that. Right. Like, Mm. so long as you're using the right system, it's going to work, but everything else, successful people have or leave room for nuance where we can look at and go, well, that could be the factor, but also the wind was blown from the left. So like, we have to account for that. Like in whatever it is, It's my ridiculous wind example, but I think that the more room for nuance that we can leave into training and really understanding whether you want to bring something out, whether you want to stop something, whatever it is, there is no one way. There's so many different ways for everything. Let me go back again. You said when you were talking about in dealing uh, the inevitable, right? And you were sort of referencing that uh, a little while ago in regards to management and behavior modification type stuff in that living with a dog. That's something I have had a lot of success with. And, you know, I've bounced around as a trainer. I started out really force-free, I like, and then was into, you know, more what I would now call like popo nay. like I'll teach and then I'll use corrections. And now I'm sort of more knee popo or I'll incorporate some pressure in a learning phase at some point so that later I can use that pressure as a correction, even when the dog says, no, I'm not doing it. But one of the things that I've come around to using a lot and, it, and it, I've been more successful with it, with the more extreme dogs as I get my hands on them is dealing in the inevitable where I show the dog like, Hey, there's just no way that the behavior I've asked for is not going to happen. And I'm prepared to wait up to an hour or two or three or four or five or whatever. I've asked for it. You know it, I'm going to wait. And I suppose I think of that in terms of using negative reinforcement at a really low level for a really long time. And that negative reinforcement could be just, uh, 
his own desire to get the bite, for example, right? Like when I'm going to fuse obedience with uh, protection for the first time. So the dog's been made crazy for biting and I'm going to now ask him to actually sit in the presence of the decoy before I let him bite. That negative reinforcement is in my mind his own desire to get the bite is what is the negative. That's the pressure that he's under. And I'm just going to be holding him on a flat collar or whatever and saying like, no, I know you know how to sit. I know that you're you are going to do it at some point, whether it's through frustration or you just get bored and you're going to put your ass on the floor. But dealing in the inevitable is a huge part of my training. How much does that feed into what, enough of me waffling about it, how much does that feed into the way that you train? Because I know that you uh, like try to lean towards as motivational as possible, right? And and you said something, you had a little catch cry there, it was kind and what was it that you said there? Effective. Kind and effective. So is that a technique that you employ or, you know, when the motivational math doesn't add up where the dog, you know, the dog knows what you're asking of it, but it wants to do something else. Right. And you're, when that doesn't add up, is inevitability a, a route that you use at that time? Not in competition training. So I have a mental differentiation between behavior, home life, and uh, the stuff we're talking about performance, performance uh-huh. training in life, home and such. I do have rules and I don't necessarily care how my dog feels about it. So what I mean is I don't really care that my dog wants to get on the couch and I'm not going to let him. I don't care that he doesn't appreciate my approach. I don't use pain in training. That for me is just a, it's off the table. So there's not going to be pain, whether it's in my house or in competition, but in my home, I don't even care how you feel. It's like, I'm not going to let you run out the door. I know you want to run out the door. I don't care how you feel about it. You're not going to do it. So what you're talking about, I apply in my home life and in life as a whole. I have the patience of a saint. I will wait you out and I will win, right? Like I'll just stand here as long as I need to. You'll, You'll get it. In competition, where you focus on the inevitable, I focus on arousal. So for me, everything is about arousal. If I ask you to sit and you can't because of the bite, your arousal is too high. So my mental model is how am I going to lower your arousal? I can move further away. That usually does it. I can feed you. I can just sit there, keep feeding. I'm the only person who in the middle of protection is stuffing hot dogs in my dog's face. If my dog cannot eat a hot dog, what does that tell me? Arousal is too high. Mm -hmm. What do I need to do? Well, there's choices, right? I can have the helper change their behavior. I could change my location. There's all kinds of things you can do. So I don't use inevitability in competition. In competition, everything is, I care so much about how you feel about this. So everything is emotions. Are you happy? Are you clear? And if you're clear and you're happy, I'm going to get what I want if you know what I want. If you understand, I'm not going to have a problem. If you're not happy or you're not clear, that's the problem I'm going to solve. So I'm not even going to worry about what's going on in the dog sports. And I remember uh, um, doing some work with a decoy and I was letting my dog kind of just do whatever he wanted because um, I was introducing him to her. And that was before I realized exactly what kind of puppy I had. And so I was letting him be a little wild for a couple, three sessions. And around number three, I'm like, okay, now you need to relax a little neat cheese. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to be eating any cheese. And I'm like, fine. This is not a fight we're having today. I let him do whatever he wanted. And then I went home and said, that's not going to happen again. So then I sat down and I said, why did it happen? What did I do to cause that? What am I going to do to prevent it? I had a meeting with my decoy, uh, did a private lesson, explained what I was seeing, had a long talk, 
changed direction. She changed direction. It was obvious that we were on a better track and went with that. So, um, you know, it's just, I'm coming from a different place. And I have found that arousal, especially with these fiery dogs solves pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. And I know where I want my dog. I don't want them dull. I don't want them a one or a two, but I sure as hell don't want them between a seven and a 10. Now the exception would be when we're patterning. So let's say bite out, down, bite out, down. You can be high as a kite because once the dog knows that pattern, the decoy stops, I say out, and you know you're going to get to read by it. It doesn't matter how high you are because now you can out down, but not when you're first learning it. When you're first learning it, what? Right? You know, it's not even possible. Um, so that's, that's kind of worked for me. That's sort of where I focus, especially in these really um, high arousal working dog sports. Working dog sports, if the dog brings it to the table, you're the brakes on the bus. In the performance world, it's the opposite. In the performance world, you are the go, right? So that's all the, I need you to play, play, play. How am I going to build motivation? So that's kind of what I'm known for is building motivation for performance dogs. But in the protection world, I'm actually known for the opposite. I'm known for bringing control into dogs that have all the go in the world. Now the question is, how do I make you stop? And that's actually why I do both. I do performance because it fascinates me to get the go when you're going for like a championship where you're competing with your dog several times a month, you have to win 20, you know, classes of 20 dogs. You need to place first or second, or you don't get any points. It's, it's quite a, it's quite a grind. Honestly, it's not my idea of a good time. I do it, but it's really not my idea of a good time. That's all about how do I keep this dog motivated? And for me, my love of the working dog sports is how do I keep this dog under control when everything in them wants to do what they want to do. And I'm like, no, I have an idea. <laughs> the dog's like, yeah, but I don't like your idea. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. I, I, again, it gets back to the fascination with dog training. It never ends. And so that kind of feeds into what you were saying earlier about you putting in the control work on this puppy early because you know the bite, the fight, that's all there and you're happy to bring in that control. So does that then look like, and sorry, I know I'm getting a little bit technical, but I'm really I'm curious. Does that then look like you're doing obedience in the presence of a decoy before he's even knows what a decoy is so that it's normal when you bring those together? Is that a picture that you would do? Well, I have to think that one through. So I do my own decoy work. So it's actually right from the start involved in decoy work. Okay. So for example, I will put on leg sleeves and we do healing. Yep. The reinforcement is I stop, I turn and face you. Now we do bite work. Um, I have a line in my yard with a harness on the end of it. So I have toys all over my yard. I have biting equipment in my yard on the ground. You're doing send outs over leg sleeves from the time you are doing send outs. So mm -hmm. everything is so incorporated. I don't even think he has a clue of a difference between obedience or bite work. Or like when I had a decoy come to my house, he comes, he does some work with me here. He's the perfect decoy for this. My puppy saw him and went ballistic. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work for me. He's like, no problem. He sits in the bench. He gets out his phone. And a half hour later, so this gets to what you were talking about. A half hour later, I, had, I was as far away as I could possibly get trying to feed my puppy. It took a long time before my puppy could calm down enough to eat. Then I did bite work. Forget the guy in the corner. I see him. I did bite work with my puppy. And when he finally was where I thought there was a brain then I brought the decoy into the picture. And it was interesting. We only had to do that once. The next time the decoy came, he's like, yeah, 
I do know what I do understand the drill, but I would say right from the beginning, you know, I do um, unedited. I do my training videos on my Facebook page are unedited. So you get to see what I do. I do Facebook lives left and right. Right. So you get to watch my dog do everything wrong. You get to watch him lead training. You want to know what I do? Watch. Right. It's like there's no secrets here. And it's all off leash, right? From the, I don't use a leash at all, except to walk my dog. Mm-hmm. But I don't use it in training at all. Um, I don't use a clicker because I don't have enough hands. You know, if I had a third hands, I use clicker. I don't have that. So I click with my mouth or I say yes. My cues suck. You know, I I have friends who are so clean. You know, I can't even remember what my toys are called. So I get it wrong all the time. I click when I should say ball. I, you know, and in spite of that, my dogs learn because we just stick it out. We stay in the game. Uh, we work it out together. And I love videotaping my work and throwing those things up. I put all the mistakes in there. So the one I put up today, I'm teaching my dog directed jumping. Um, I mark it. I do something else. And then I tell him to do it. So he has to remember what I marked because I don't remark when I send him. He just has to know. Uh, So I put that up. I make sure the errors are in there. I go out of my way to take clips that have mistakes so people can see. What are the options? What do you do? What do you do when your dog leaves training and chases a squirrel? Mm -hmm. You want to see it? Right there. There it is. Just happened, right? Um, but I think I'd love to see more trainers do that because that yep. is where the learning, that's where the learning takes place. Mm. And, you know, and I can't, I mean, so many people, Oh, I don't know if you do that. And then they, they give me the list of, you know, it's you're, you're going to go to hell and, and whatever, <laughs> and just, just keep on watching, come back in a month, come back in a month, come back in a month, come back in a month. And then they like, yeah, you know, it does work. Doesn't mean I won't have problems. You bet I'm going to have problems. I, when I did my Mondio ring one with my dog, with Reka, she bit Santa Claus before we even shook hands on the defensive, um, defensive <laughs> handle. It was, a, it was a Dr. Seuss theme. I didn't even get to decorate the Christmas tree. But I'm open about that. It's not like I go to a trial and I pass. I pass the next day. It's just, it's just the way it is. You know what? I didn't train it well enough. So that's the way it is, right? I'll do better next time. The good news is that's not about how I train. Every trainer I know fails. We all fail. Mm. And what, what I love about Mondial, one of the reasons I love that sport, I really feel that in that sport more than any sport, everybody is wants everybody to succeed. Like there's that sense of you don't know what's going to happen at the trial. Like in some of that stuff they throw at you is pretty weird. And my feeling is that people are pulling for each other in a really genuine way because mm. of the complexity of that sport. So, you know, people go, Oh, well, you know, this thing could happen if you teach it that way. And I'm like, yeah, certainly could. This thing could happen to you too. Just, it's, you know, what are you going to do when you don't have your cookies? I hear this all the time. I said, I don't know. What are you going to do when you don't have a leash? We're all in the same boat. When we get to a trial, you don't have a leash. I don't have a cookies. All we have left is our training. And if we did a good job, you're going to make it, I'm going to make it. And it's okay. We're going to get there. But those aren't even methods, you know, that's nothing to do with method. That's about how good is your training and how good is your proofing? How well do you understand your sport? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the reasons we see in the sport dog world is like a rush to uh, completion and therefore maybe, you know, maybe using more pressure than we might like, or we see people doing that is sometimes a leak over from people who train dogs to prepare them for the street. Say like whether they're police or military dogs or something like that, where there is a timeline, right? Like you've got your hands on this dog for six weeks and it's a, in order to make this a profitable business, the dog must be sellable at 
whatever the going rate is in six weeks or else you're you're going backwards as a business and you're going to lose money. So then you you take yeah. liberties or do things because that's how that dog has to be trained. Mm. And then that mindset sometimes leaks over into the sport dog community where for some people it is about putting a title on the dog to show like, hey, this dog has a title before it goes on to be sold or whatever. And I get that. But I think a lot of people sort of take for granted, and this is something I encourage people when they don't have necessarily the perfect dog or something, is we say, hey, it's actually about the process. Like there is no end. When the dog's dead, it's over, right? When the dog can't compete anymore, is too old, then you've lost your window. But if it takes you eight weeks to teach this behavior instead of four weeks, then that's really probably no big deal. And sometimes making mistakes along the way, as long as there is some form of consequence for those mistakes, right? Where the dog has a learning moment from the mistake. It's actually a good thing because now that mistake won't be a problem for us on the field again, right? Like it won't because the yeah. dog has learned like, oh, okay, when the squirrel comes and I take off after it, there is a consequence. There is something like I lose access to the decoy. Like I am not, well, no, ma no matter your method, whatever it is, that dog has had a repetition of that, right? Whereas if we can over control and never allow anything to go wrong, I think sometimes then inevitably when it does go wrong, <laughs> it's a disaster. Mm. And I, I feel you completely like my game is PSA. That's what I like to play. And just like Mondio, we have surprise scenarios where you turn up and you're like, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen yeah. here. And I do think that compared to some other dog sports where people are overly competitive and a little bit, what's the word without upsetting anybody? Well, but sort of narky and like when you, especially say an IGP where the, you know, world championships are won and lost on half points, right? You really are directly competing against your competitors. But I think in the surprise scenario games, there's a more feeling of camaraderie because you're competing against the fucking game, not each other, mm. right? Like you're competing against the difficulty of the sport, not you or I. And, and there, imagine you, you know, by the entry of the draw, you're before me in the surprise scenario and I get to see you try something and it not work, then I get to learn from your error. So I am appreciative of you. Or I get to see you try something and it does work and I go, oh, well, now I know how I'm going to come at that problem. Again, I'm appreciative of you, right? And so mm. I think yeah. it, those surprise scenario games build camaraderie more than the, the pattern games, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, you know, it's a smaller community too. Mondo is very small. So I'm coming from AKC Obedience, which is a larger community, a shrinking community, but still larger. Mm. I'll tell you a story. I'm not proud of this, but it's true. My very first high trial dog, he was young. He was 16 months old when he got his high trial. And I remember winning the class and, you know, I didn't give it too much thought. And then realizing that there was only one more class to run and that I was actually in the running for high trial. If that, depending on what happened in the final class, and I remember sitting down and watching that class and wanting the dogs to fail. And I've never forgotten that. So that was 25 years ago. And I'm not proud of that. But I realize it's a very normal human emotion to want to win when you're that close, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, the good news is since that time, I've had a lot of high end trials. Your first is always a big deal, right? And so I... I am sympathetic to myself because I understand that side of human nature, but I don't like it. And now I'm in a sport where, God, I just want to pass. I mean, it's all brand new for me, right? Like I've got lots of uh, IPO3 dogs, lots of, lots of AKC titles, um, but I don't have a Mondio dog, right? So I just want to get through it. I don't want to win anything. I could care less, you know? I recognize that could change over time. And uh, 
I think that's maybe one of the reasons I'm so attracted to the sport is I'm tired of the hyper precision and Mm -hmm. I, I still train for it. I still appreciate it. But when I watch the IPO and I mean, now it's at the point where not only does it have to run out for the dumbbell, run back for the dumbbell, they can't even practically breathe over the dumbbell or it's considered moving. Then it kind of gets to the point where I'm looking at that and I'm saying, all right, well, I'm sort of losing some of my appreciation or like on the out of motions where the dog has to hit the ground so fast that I'm like, that's just not normal. Like it, it doesn't feel normal to me. I want the dog to be crisp, but not look like somebody hit it over the head with a shovel. Right. And it's not that I think it's right or wrong. I think it's a little bit where we are in our lives and you know what we're looking for. And I really do like challenge and I am not a competitor. And what I mean by that is like when my dogs finish their championships, I never go back in the ring. I don't even go back in the ring if I'm entered the next day. I don't even go back. I don't have any great love for competition. I never really have. I compete to proof my training. My experience is I can think I have all that and then I get to the dog show and all that just fell apart. So I go to shows because I really do believe it forces me to be better. And when you are competing in an event, if you are teaching precision and you get a 199 and you don't win the class out of 200, then you start getting really serious about why. Why can't I get that perfect front every time? And you know what? You become a better trainer for it. And that is why I compete, to show that what I do works I do it because my dogs are beautiful workers. I want to show off my beautiful working dogs, but I don't enjoy getting up at three in the morning, driving three hours, (laughs) lugging myself a half a mile. You know, that's not my idea of how I want to spend a week and the money, you know, back when I was competing seriously, uh, the school hadn't started yet and we were struggling. You know, Uh, my, I had two kids, my husband was taking care of them. I was a dog trainer. Dog trainers are not wealthy people, you know? And writing those checks for $100 for those entry fees over and over was really stressful for me. Mm. Uh, So I was happy to walk away from all of that. You know, so now my life is easier for sure. But I I also think age has taken away some of that competitive edge too. I know some people just really have that and I admire that, but I don't have that side. I am a trainer. I'm not a competitor. Obsession is a young person's game. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, these people like IPO in particular, or IGP, I don't know. They keep changing the name. Why do they do that? <laughs> anyway. So those people out there in the morning tracking at six, I had a baby. I, my baby was in a pack in the front and I'm out there tracking in the morning, doing obedience in the afternoon, training professionally, and then working protection at night. I, what was, where was my brain? What was I thinking? Now I'm just like, could I just get a little more sleep in the morning? You know, it's, I'm in a different place in my life. And so then I run into these young people who are, or even my age, even, you know, they're so motivated and focused and I'm so like, wow, that's amazing. I left that somewhere. I, you know, I've, I've lost so much of that, but I do, uh, Mario has really re-sparked my interest. And while I am training my puppy for me, foundations are foundations. It doesn't, I just teach, I don't know, 30 things or something. And then you just put them together in different combinations and they give you all the behavior. So it's just a matter of trading out, you know, now it's a platform. Now it's a cone. Now it's a dumbbell. It's all the same, you know, go out and around and back. I teach a lot of patterns that serve me well. So I'm teaching all my patterns, but I have been excited about training in a way I haven't been in a really long time. So the combination of having a dog that's suited and having friends that I like the company of the Mondio world and meeting new people on Facebook now. So I'm actually 
quite inspired right now with my training and I had lost, I hadn't been in a ring in eight, nine years. I just, well, my last dog, uh, Lyra, is trained up through everything and just doesn't care. And I just <laughs> could not motivate myself to keep going with a dog who just doesn't care. She's mm. just is a wonderful pet. She's a lovely pet dog. She loves everybody. She gets along with dogs, people. She's wonderful. And then the day I stopped training her, I skipped a day, and I realized so that was kind of pleasant. And then that was it. Like, I just never trained her again. I walk her. I, she has a good life. I have a pool. She swims. You know, she has a good life. But realizing I don't have to train the dog. But I don't owe the dog and the dog doesn't care. So it's okay to walk away. So now I have this dog who trains the way I train. He's got, that's, there's nothing he'd rather do than work. So I'm like, all right, now I have a friend. This is my buddy. And that's how I have felt about many of my dogs. But then I didn't have that. And I, I just won't push through. You know, I, again, a lot of people will, they'll train dogs that I would say are not suitable for sport. As long as they're happy, as long as the dog is willing. And what I say is, the dog doesn't have to be happy, but it shouldn't be unhappy. So yeah. how's that for, yeah, yeah. it has to be, it has to accept it well enough, but it doesn't have to love it. That was my criteria with my own dogs with competition. You don't have to love this, but you can't be unhappy. Mm. And they, they did it for me because I asked them to, and they were trained to work. But now I've got this, you know, little workaholic dog and I've got a sport that I'm, you know, invested in. So kind That's of looking awesome. forward to the next few years. That's awesome. It's exciting to hear. Hey, Denise, I'm really appreciative of you sharing your vulnerability in talking about sharing your mistakes in some of your videos and so forth. It's something that I've for a long time been critical of people that they get on YouTube and they show a clip of them working a dog and, you know, everything's perfect. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but what's the backstory of the dog? Were you totally involved in the training? Did you do some of the mistakes? How did you rectify it? You know, like when I watch people sharing things, Pat put a video on Patreon, our Patreon channel a while ago of him working with Remy, where he was teaching, you know, the dog to run in a circle on command, like run around a, like a park. And he had to run this great big circuit and come back. And he, but he showed, you know, where things went wrong and where the dog did the similar thing where he got distracted and ran off after a bird, I think it was, or something like that. And, you know, I love that when I'm seeing trainers sharing that because what I learned from that is what are you failing in and what are you doing to rectify that? Like, how do you fix these problems rather than just showing me how you become an overnight success five years in the making and you've burned through so many dogs? I actually get to see a journey rather than just see this pristine, beautiful relationship with a dog where I, I appreciate it, but there's nothing else. Like, it's more marketing and ego than it is about showing people how to solve the problems that they're all having with their same dog. Like I said, you look at it and you go, wow, that's awesome. But how do I do that? How do I replicate that? And how do I fix that with the dog that I've currently got? And, you know, like I've tried to do some of that, but I'm having problems and I can't get through them. Like there's no breakthrough. But when I do see that, when people are showing me, I'm thinking, now I know what I've, I'm missing. Now I've got the ingredient that was missing from the original presentation. So thanks. I like it. Thank you. You know, one thing, there's two thoughts are in my head. One, it goes far when somebody says to me, thank you. It really does. So when somebody puts a Facebook comment saying, I want you to know, I appreciate that you show these errors because I learned so much. One thank you gets you 10 more videos out of me. Yeah. Right? Having said that, the other side of that is people who are sort of hypercritical. So you're putting the stuff out and they're like, 
well, um, are you worried about that head tilt that you did that you're going to have to get rid of that? And all? You know, it's like looking for, um, uh, for weaknesses or whatever. And, you know, missing the picture of what the person is giving to you. I don't mind being questioned. Like if somebody says, um, can you help me understand why you did this? That's a fine question. I love questions like that. That's a very different approach than um, picking and choosing. Like, um, I noticed that your left foot always shows the whatever, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of a low level criticism. It's hard to explain exactly. It's meant to be, um, I caught you doing this thing, but I'm not telling you that, you know, it's this kind of weird thing. I could live without that. I'm pretty sturdy and I'll just kind of go over the top of it and ignore it. But I've noticed that other trainers uh, stop sharing their errors when people helpfully advise them. And it's like, you know, don't do that. You know, don't give advice. If somebody has not asked you for advice, don't give it. It's not appropriate. Somebody is sharing with you. If they want advice, they will ask, you know. Um, plus, frankly, I think it's weird for somebody to give me advice on dog training when it's like a person who's never done any competition in their life. It's like, are you serious? I mean, you really feel comfortable doing that publicly? That's that's me. That's weird. So acknowledge people when they take the time to do that. I think that goes far. The other reason I think it's super important that we show our errors is I think we make people insecure who are just getting into dog sports. And the last thing you want to do is make newbies insecure. You want newbies to understand that you struggle too Mm. and that we're all struggling, you know? Otherwise what happens is they become closet fearful, you know, because they feel like, oh, I never get anything right. And, And these people I admire, man, it's always so perfect. And then what I find is they never progress in their training because they keep circling about the one thing, you know, and it's like, you know what, just chill, just relax. It's okay. Just move on. It's okay. That's not perfect. It's okay. Move on and look at my training and notice that it wasn't perfect. I didn't do all the things I tell you I should do. I'll give you do what I say, not what I do. Like notice all these bad things I do, but then I tell people, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that I continue to move forward and I want that message to come across. And the more trainers open up about the challenges, I don't mean the challenges in, oh yeah, you should have seen this dog it was so horrible four years ago. He's amazing now. No, show it when it's happening. It's, it's the real time faith that you will either fix it or humility a year later when you say, you know, I can't, I don't know how to fix this one. Mm. I've given it my all. And then the response of the audience should be, thank you for your honesty and sharing, not, well, have you tried this, right? <laughs> like, all these pieces fit together uh, and allow us to be so much better. And so I do watch these great, I've trained with some good people and I've watched their journeys. I know they struggle. They know I struggle. And so we're all in the same boat. And yep. I think, um, the social media world allows us to share open and honestly. And it's uh, it's a great thing to do. So my puppy, every day I did a Facebook live for the first two months of his life. I just trained him publicly for 15 minutes. And I got an enormous amount of people saying, you have no idea how much better I feel about my journey as a watching you struggle. See, that's an integral point right there, because I think people stress so much about the struggle and the failure that you have. But I think they're the, some of the best breakthrough sessions that you have is when you go through that and, you know, listening to you at the beginning of this whole interview, when you were talking about your early dog, I think those grinds really forge you in stone. You know, they really turn you into who you were meant to become because if everything is easy, 
you become sort of like a little bit of a trust fund baby when you get to the end of it. You know, like when you really do get faced with some challenges, you collapse in the heat of it. But when you're going through those struggles and when you're, as long as you're getting solutions to them and you understand how to control them inevitably, but in the beginning, when you're, when you're pushing yourself, I think it's a wonderful thing. I'd try and advise people, embrace it. Don't stress about it so much. I have for a long time thought that unedited, mistake-ridden, problem-solving videos is the future of online material for dog training. And so like the first thing I ever put out was a video series on how to raise a puppy. And we bought a puppy. We didn't just get like a, a pre-trained dog and show you do this and do that. I got the dog. I still have her. She's my pet. But we filmed everything over 12 months and we showed like, this is the real process. These mm. are the asshole behaviors you've got to deal with. And this is how you teach a sit to a dog that has never followed a lure before. And it's real basic stuff. It was really aimed for, you know, average pet dog owner. But I have for a long time felt that, but what it does require is exactly what you said, Denise, is that it's uh, you need a thick skin and, and there's not many people who are going to be able to put that sort of content out because yeah. people who, exactly as you say, have never achieved anything and have never trained a dog to any, any standard worth noticing will pick out all the flaws, which is what, you know, regularly happens with stuff I put out and, and, you know, exactly we, I put out a video recently, the one Glenn was talking about, and there's a part in it where I stand up and go, shit, why is that happening? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't say that I am without ego that that wasn't hard to put out. It was. And I watched that many times and I sent it to a few people and was like, hey, can I do this? Because you see me genuinely get fucking confused because I have no idea why my dog won't do something. And in the end, I just chose to end the session. That was like, I was so confused. I just ended the session and said, oh, fuck, I don't know how to work through this. Mm. And then- But that's a legitimate answer, right? And what you just gave to people was so human and so- realistic exactly because on many occasions i've looked at it and i've i've just kind of turned my back and went that's not what i had in mind <laughs> and i don't really want to see that again exactly right and uh, so speaking from a business point of view i think that like you know that's the future of stuff because the market is flooded with like this perfect. do that perfect yep. videos mm. if no one ever makes another one of those videos we'll not be lacking for those videos ever again in the future but what they yeah. what we are lacking is where something goes well just where something goes wrong and you go mm. oh this is how i fix that i've seen this before i've had this 15 times this is how i fix it mm. and we will never flood the market in that because there will always be new fuck ups there will always be something yeah. new or, or there'll be that dog that just goes, no, I'm not downing. Absolutely not. That's not happening. That, yep. that is not happening. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not pulling my belly, my belly on this floor, you know, and it might be because as a puppy, I did that and landed on a stick and now I have an aversion to that. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, here's a new and exciting problem. And we will never run out of those problems because mm. they exist in every dog. And so we can, can, we can put out, I could make a video on how to teach a dog to down a hundred times with a hundred different dogs. And it'll be a different video every time, slightly in, in, in a yep. slightly different way. Right. Yep. So long as we show real problems. The dog gives you. Exactly. And you know, that, that actually does kind of bring me back to it. Another thing I think is really valuable is for people to see in real time unedited that for three days I did a thing. And on the fourth day I stop and I said, I don't like what I'm seeing. Mm. I do not like the direction this is going. And I have decided that based on ABCD, it's time to stop and I'm going to redo this plan. I do that all the time. Mm. And I think people need to see that. Don't dig. You know what? It's okay to dig, but don't go for a grave, right? Like sometimes you just have to stop digging back out and figure out a new direction. And I think that is another thing that the unedited videos really show to people 
is when you kind of start looking at something going, I'm getting uncomfortable here. I am not liking what I'm seeing here. And then again, you get the rule driven people who are like, yeah, but no, it's not working for me. It's Mm. not working for this dog. It's time for me to reconsider. But that does come from sort of unedited work and then evaluating what you have. Uh, And, and I am actually totally good in the middle of a session saying, I don't, I can't, I can't problem solve that in real time. Mm. I need to think this one through. So we're moving on and we move on. I don't think I'm not apologizing for that. And then later on, I may occasionally put something on Facebook saying, I've been thinking about this and this is what I'm going to try tomorrow. And I'm excited to try it. Right. So I'll put it out there. But I have found that uh, this, I had one like you were describing where you kind of stood up and went, oh shit. I had one about a week ago where my puppy had a bit of a reactive display in my yard. And the first thing I did was not only ineffective, I mean, it was just dumb. It's like not good training by any stretch and it didn't work. Imagine that. And so I was kind of pissed off. But anyway, I get him back and then I did some good training. Now I had a lovely editing opportunity here because there was this clean break where I could have just chopped it at the point where I brought him back. And then I looked brilliant. I had seven minutes of brilliance, you know, and I just, I swear to God, I sat in front of my computer looking at that first minute being embarrassed at myself for my poor handling, my poor training, my poor lack of self-control. And I decided to leave it in and I put it on Facebook and somebody made a comment about it. And I said, let me just tell you, I went round and round about putting that in. And the number of people who came back and said, that was the most important part of the whole thing to see you're human. You made a bad decision. What did you do with that decision? And so it's hard to do them, but you know, if nothing else, my school at DSA, we get a kind of an unusual kind of student. We get very smart thinking people. And I think one reason we get smart in thinking is the people who write you off because you show the real deal and they want to go train with somebody who's perfect all the time. Frankly, I don't want them because those are not the kind of people who are going to do well with me. They're looking for a guru. I don't do guru. So I'd much rather have people who see me as a human being and flawed. So they are attracted to somebody who is thinking and listening Mm. and open as opposed to the one who always looks amazing on high. I'm not interested in that and they're not interested in me. So it actually sort of works itself out as a winnowing process. And I end up with better students for it. Yep. Yeah. And I think the funnel of people that are able to do that is pretty narrow. Like you you must first have had some good success so that you could prove that you it does work and nobody knows how you got to that. You just turned up and were successful. Then you need to show like, here's my method. And then people will accept your mistakes, mm. right? Because they've seen, oh, well, it does work. And here's my mistakes that happened along the way. And that person then needs to have the lack of ego and thick enough skin to accept that criticism. So you certainly fit into that that category, but there aren't many people that do. Like there aren't many people that that's a very narrow funnel that we're expecting a, a content creator to go through to get to that point. And that's why I say it's the future because there's so few people doing it there and there's such high demand for it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're running out of time. I got to go, but, uh, been a hell of a conversation it didn't go anywhere i had all these talking points and none of them came up that's a beautiful show it's totally organic. <laughs> hey before we do go you've said that you've got an interesting story about australia and beer oh yeah 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 all right so when i was doing this multi-week tour thing you know you, you you're jet lagged you're tired you're flying around a bunch and so uh, i do have in my contract it does say it says a lot, but one of the things it says is I, I need a beer when I get there. <laughs> I want a beer. 
Fair enough. So, cold. How are, yeah, that's not that's not so hard. Yeah, and I prefer microbrewery beer and local. Mm-hmm. So yeah, see, see what you can do for me. And everybody does it. Yeah. So I show up at one place and they take me to this really lovely B and B and they say we'll just leave you tonight because you're tired and all, and your beer is there right and it was on my desk and I'm tired and I walk in and I'm like thank God right and I get the beer there's no opener <laughs> so it's late so I can't really and I I'm in a it's a B and B not a hotel right a hotel you just call the front desk you don't do that in somebody's house you know. And I'm like, oh, damn, now what? So, I, you know, I'm searching all over the place. I can't find it, but I want my beer, and I can't get into it. So then <laughs> I do exactly what you should never do, right? So I'm like, I could probably just knock the top off uh-huh. if I, you know, find the right object in this room. So I'm kind of walking around the room trying to figure it out, and you can guess what happened, right? I broke the bottle, and I cut my hand. And I'm bleeding all over the place. And it's got these beautiful white sheets. Uh, <laughs> so I'm bleeding all over the sheets and I'm appalled. I'm just appalled, right? So I'm cleaning up to the best of my ability. And I'm trying to figure out how can I hide this, right? But you can't. I mean, we need to wash your sheets and, you know. So anyway, I threw out the bear and I cleaned up. And the next day, so I, there's nothing I could do. All my sheets were all perfectly white again. I don't, I, nobody said anything. It just... <laughs> It didn't happen. Yeah. It just disappeared. Well, the story they told is that uh, Denise Fenzi killed someone in her room. And yep. <laughs> there was a murder in here. There was a murder in here. We'll help her cover it up because we don't want her not able to come back. Yeah. yeah I, was doing, I was doing animal sacrifices. <laughs> whoever was hosting you probably just said, oh, the audacity of this woman just to kill someone in here and not even, <laughs> just expect us to cover it up. Yeah, we've got to hide the body for her. This is disgraceful. <laughs> hey, you, uh, you should hook up with Josh Moran over there. He's a beer connoisseur. He took me, uh, came to conference for the ICP in St. Louis. Him and Justin Hall took me around uh, all of St. Louis and they took me to all the microbreweries around there and we sampled every type of beer you could imagine. So uh, I think you two would get along famously. I would imagine we would. Mm. Hey, thanks so much for giving us your time. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. So Um, much. And I think a lot of people are going to enjoy listening to it. We should do this again in the future yeah, and, and I have, talk more on a topic. Yeah, I have some real specific questions I wanted to ask you that I thought would be interesting, but we'll have to go to that another time if you're up for it. But yeah, yeah for thanks sure. again. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. So yeah, that's, thanks so much for doing yeah, for it. Sure. Fancy Dog Sport Academy, tell us about that. Give it a plug. Let people know what's happening, what it is, how they can find it. So in a nutshell, FancyDogSportsAcademy.com. We're pretty darn big. We offer about 40 classes every term. We have a new term starting October 1st. We have webinars two a week. We have workshops a couple a week. They last for one week. And then we have the six week classes, which we're best known for. We have instructors from around the world. We cover everything, agility, obedience, behavior. We're starting a new pet program in about a month. So that would be like 30 videos where a person can look up something like housebreaking, chewing, whatever, right? So they're well vetted, taught by, you know, good, good, strong people. The prices will be right, very fair. We do have a scholarship program. Ask if you need some help. A lot of Aussies because the dollar sucks. You know what? Just ask. Get, mm. get this, we make it so simple. We don't ask you hard questions. Just ask. Uh, and we keep our prices super low anyway. So love to have new people. So if you want to learn some stuff, dog sports, behavior, whatever, I hope you'll join us. You can always send a note over to help at fenzyacademy.com if you're not sure where to start because it can be a little overwhelming. And I do have a new book coming out, Conversations with Reika. 
So uh, super excited about this book. If you're interested in competition and you want to hear about the life of a dog after she retires and what the last three years of her life were like, it's a lovely story. So the dog talks. So that'll sound very strange, but I talked to Reka and it's super light and entertaining. People say they sit and cry. They laugh so hard. Sounds fun. So mm. come join. Uh, yeah. Come join Reka. If you want to actually learn like serious things about dog training, what you'll discover is every book I wrote gets less serious. So my personality <laughs> starts to come out. Like the first book is very serious, but I think I've written like 10 now. I don't know a lot. So the lighter, the later I wrote it, the more humor it's going to have in there. So I've got books on Beyond the Backyard is, you know, proofing for dogs that know the basics. How do you do that? Beyond the basics is behavior. Solving behaviors in your home, evaluating where they're coming from. It's very different, very different approach. It's an emotion-based approach, not a behavior-based. Hey, Denise, I've got a riddle for you. You know the difference between a dog trainer and an author? Hmm. An author actually gives credit to their referees. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I try. I try to give credit. Yeah, but we'd love, we always want to see new people. And we have a super active group on Facebook with Aussies are huge. What, 10% of our population is Australian. Yeah. So it's yeah. a Australians big, are, big part of our business. Yeah, we're it's, hungry. It's something we've spoken about a lot. There's a lot of very high quality dog trainers here, very highly educated because yep. we're an island, we're limited by dogs, right? So it's really, we have what we have. Mm. And I think what has happened in Australia is we have our stress, our pressure has been to get better with what we have because Mm. we don't have the best dogs. So we've had to get good with what we have. So there's some phenomenally educated people here, really, really good dog trainers that are hungry for knowledge. And that's why all around the world, when people come and do seminars here, they're like, oh shit, we can start at a intermediate level. We don't have to do the basics because you guys have covered that, Mm. right? Like it's, you guys know it well. So yeah, it's something we're proud of here, but it's just a pressure that we face is that we've got to get good with what we have. Yeah. So, uh, get a lot of Aussies. So you'll have lots of company. If you join us and you join the alumni group on Facebook, you'll, uh, you'll know familiar faces. Like, oh, I didn't even know you were here. People do that all the time. It's very cute. Actually. That's cool. That's really so, cool. Uh, love to have some new people. We, uh, we're very open and welcoming to anybody who wants to learn some new stuff. That's awesome. Hey, thanks again for your time. I'm going to do the wrap up. Yep. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Mm -hmm. Be specific. Tell us exactly what it was about this conversation with Denise that you enjoyed. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is on Patreon. We've spoken about some of the Patreon content today. Three bucks a month gets you extra, like an extra episode a month, and there's various tiers you can go into. And if you want to buy me a private jet so that I could fly around and teach you personally, that's fine too. Hasn't happened yet. But it's available. And another way you could support the show is to jump into Teespring. You could get yourself some cool merch with our branding all over it and mm-hmm. rep us all over the world. Yep. And if you have some training questions, best way to go about that is group source information in the Facebook group. We are the Canine Paradigm Discussion Group. Or if you want to get in touch with us of a personal nature, you could email us. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Glenn, music, please. Glenn loves to make people listen to our music at the end of the interviews. <laughs> That's good. It's good music. It's fun. It's light. <laughs> <laughs>